Welcome, everybody. So glad that you guys are here. Welcome to you guys. If you're joining us online today, it's going to be fun. Um, how many of you guys had one of these in the 1980s? Is a Walkman. Anybody have a Walkman? Do we have a picture of the Walkman? Do we have a picture of the Walkman up there? There it is. Yeah, yeah. How many of you still have a Walkman? <laughs> Anybody? I don't remember. <laughs> Rich has a Walkman still. Uh, you know, um, I didn't really have a Walkman, but I had one of these. I had a boombox. You remember the boombox? And at one point, and, I, and I'm glad that there's no photos to validate this, but at one point I had parachute pants and I would long hair and I would carry around the boombox on my shoulder. I did not have a girlfriend during that time. And then how many of you had this? It was a clapper, you know, clap on, clap off for the lights. Anybody, anybody? Not too many. You were one of those late night people that went ahead and bought it, you know? Yeah. Clap on, clap off. We spent so much time just kind of getting the thing to go, and it didn't go off, and it came on, you know? And then what was the other one? Oh, this is one of my favorites. Still to this day, the video game console, Atari. Anybody have an Atari? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No clappers, but lots of Ataris. I used to be known, this was not during this game console, but I used to be known, no kidding, as Mario Mitch because I could, uh, I could beat Mario faster than just about anybody. I had people from the college room dorms uh, coming in to watch me beat Mario. Spent a lot of time in the winter in Kentucky uh, playing video games with Atari. And then uh, this has sort of made a, a new surge here lately, but a Polaroid camera. We had Polaroid cameras. Yeah, I, I think everybody probably had one of those. And then if you're, if, you're, if you're over, if you're under 40, you probably aren't going to know most of these things, but you might not know this. This was the rotary phone. Do you remember the rotary phone? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, we had one. We were a little more advanced. We had one. We went out and bought at Radio Shack, which is, I don't think there exists anymore. We had at Radio Shack, we bought the real long cord. So if I did have a girlfriend, I could go into the other room and talk to her without anybody knowing. But I was a little bit OCD, and so I spent hours always trying to uncoil the coil to get it just right. You know, did anybody else do that? Am I the only? Good. I feel like I'm uh, with some friends here. And then uh, we had the message recorder. You remember that? You had to come home and play and see who called you and who missed the calls. Michelle just ran across our, our message recorder. She saved it for all these years because our kids' voices are on there. And, uh, and it's so, you know, it's please leave a message. It's just the kids' voices are so cool. And she digitized it. She recorded it with her cell phone the other day. And then, uh, and then I felt like I had arrived when I got my pager. I, I mean, I had, when I remember I had my first pager as I was, I was on staff at a large church in, in 1990, I got my first pager. Even if nobody ever paged me, I would wear that thing around, even if just whenever I was on vacation, I'd wear that thing around because it seemed like I was more important than I was when I had the old pager. And then, of course, I think most of us probably had at one point, we had the old floppy disk computer. That was probably a 286 there from IBM, I think. I had one of those monochrome screens. You know what all of these things have in common? <laughs> They're old. <laughs> they can all be accomplished with this right here, right? This right here in our pocket. We have every one of those things and so much more, all because of this one device. This one device, this literally, this one device has changed our culture. I, I mean, if you think about it, 
one thing, one thing that somebody came up with has radically changed our culture. I do my banking on here. I don't have to go and wait in line any longer to do banking. I can do my banking before I even have my first cup of coffee. I can buy tickets to events on here. I get my directions on here. I don't even know if I could go back to the old maps where you're trying to, you know, find landmarks and highlight where you're supposed to drive. I get my directions on here. Weather forecasts, although in Florida, it's still pretty useless for that, you know. It's always hot. It's always going to rain at 30% chance of rain, you know. Uh, We read our books on here. If you can think about it, there's probably an app for it. But my favorite one of all is my phone tells me how far my ball is from the green when I'm playing golf. And I got to tell you, I, uh, I often obsess sometimes over our culture and where we're at right now. I, I can't. If I'm not careful, I'll obsess over how much our culture has changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And I just kind of, there's been so many great and nifty inventions and so many things like the cell phone. But along with that, uh, along with those great advancements have come a lot of negative changes in our culture as well. I think about this a lot. Is If my grandfather, who passed away in 1986, or, and if my dad, who passed away in 1995, if both of them could just come back and just be infused right into our culture right now, what would they think and what would they do? Like the proverbial frog in the boiling pot of water, they would probably jump out right away, probably see our culture, and they would just want out as quickly as they found themselves in it. And if I'm not careful, maybe I'm the only one, and I know I can probably talk about this a lot, but if I'm not careful... I can actually become a little bit cynical about it. I can become a little bit cynical about the culture in which we live, the moral issues that we face, the, the, the covenant of marriage today. You know, I, I remember back in the early days of ministry when I was a pastor 30 years ago, I, I, would, do, I would do sometimes two weddings a day for a young couple I mean, I would have three, four weddings a month, sometimes in the May months and June months. I would do three or four. I did at least a wedding every month. Now, I mean, I do three, maybe three weddings a year, rarely for young couples. I, I, mostly it's for older people on their second marriages when someone passed away or something like that. You know, I can get real cynical when I think about the covenant of marriage. I think about moral issues. I think about the social issues of our day, social media even of our day. I can even get frustrated about phones. You know, Michelle and I were walking down Venice Ave the other day, and it wasn't just young people. It was, a three, it was probably three generations. There were about eight people and all walking together as a family unit I had the grandparents, the parents, and the kids, and every one of them were on their phone. You know, they were looking down, and Michelle and I were like, are we missing something? Is there like a scavenger hunt or a Pokemon convention going on? Is somebody geocaching? What's going on? We walked on a little bit further. There's a family of four, and they're all just looking down at their phones like this. And so what did we do? We thought, well, we must be missing something, so we pulled our phones out. You know, we're looking. And I can get frustrated about that. I can get frustrated about the political landscape, you know, the political landscape when we're in. And I know I've got people, you know, I've got people on one side that say, you should talk about politics more. I've got people on the other side that say, if I even say the word politics, you know, some, some people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Why is that? Because we're so divided. It has caused so much division in our culture. Christianity is no longer the norm as it used to be. And I think uh, I can just become real cynical if I'm just real honest with you. And I think sometimes, as Christians anyway, I think we spend a whole lot of energy 
focusing on the symptoms of our problems as a culture rather than focusing on the systemic change that needs to happen in our culture. And I think the systemic change, I am 100% absolutely convinced that the systemic change that needs to happen in our culture is for our entire nation to turn back to God. I, I, I believe that. With all my heart that that is the only answer to real change, real systemic change in our culture. And for years and years, I tried to battle politics. I tried to battle the moral issues of our day. I tried to battle the social issues of our day. I tried to stand up for fam the family unit and for the covenant of marriage and gender confusion and all the things that frustrate us as followers of Jesus. I I've, I've tried everything to change culture to a point that, to be quite honest with you, it started to affect me negatively. It started to affect me negatively. And let's face it. I mean, if we face it, we're, we, we have a cancer that's growing in our country and in our culture. And oftentimes, all of the other tactics uh, that I've tried to deploy to change culture have been like trying to put a Band-Aid on cancer like trying to put a Band-Aid on cancer. The only way to battle cancer is to get to the root cause of the molecular and the cellular structure at a, on the human level of the human body and, and the, to get us back to the way that God designed our bodies. That's the only way to defeat cancer. Now, I'm not saying that we should remove ourselves from politics or that we shouldn't take a stand on moral issues and social issues that are right and wrong. But many times, if not most of the times, we're trying to put a Band-Aid on a problem that truly requires systemic change at a much, much deeper level. And what is, what is our greatest mission of the church? What is the greatest mission of the church? Mike mentioned it during our, our welcome time. The mission of the church is actually really simple. And I believe it's God's answer to a broken world. Yeah, we don't see Jesus trying to get involved in the Roman politics of the day or even the social issues of the day. Because the mission of the church is really simple, to help people move closer to God. To help people move closer to God. This isn't just our church's mission statement. This is God's mission statement. This is God's mission that he gave us to the church. God gave us a mission as a church to make disciples of Jesus Christ until every man, woman, and child comes to know the living God. Simple as that. The more disciples that we make, and to put it in a little bit more relevant term, the more people that we help follow after the ways of Jesus, the more then that our culture will change because then we will be following after the heart of God. So the confusion that we feel when it comes to politics, when it comes to gender issues, when it comes to the holy covenant of marriage, when it comes to the family unit or, the, uh, or social media or social uh, 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 injustice, whatever it is, everything, everything changes when people start following hard after Jesus. Everything. And the more people that follow after Jesus, the more, the more better is that, good? is that good English? The more better we'll be at, at having politicians that make better decisions. The better counselors that we'll have. 
the better teachers that we'll have for our children. The stronger the family unit will be, we'll have more marriages that are centered around Jesus Christ being the center of their marriages. Everything, everything changes the more people follow Jesus. And what if there was a way, what if there was a way to do battle with the enemy that might be the single most effective way and yet is among the most neglected battle strategies of all battle strategies for changing culture? What if, like this uh, smartphone has changed our culture, what if there was one thing, what if there was just one thing that we could do that has the power to change everything? Well, I believe the most powerful weapon that we have as a people is prayer. I really believe that. God talks about that. He says, if my people who are called by my name, this comes from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, I think. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, repent from their sins, turn from their ways, cry out to me, I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. Prayer changes everything. I believe prayer is the most powerful weapon we have as a church in which to do battle, and I think it is the most underutilized strategies, uh, not only in the church, but in the lives of individuals in the church. Think about this. Every major spiritual awakening, not just in America, but around our world, every major spiritual awakening Every major revival, every major spiritual awakening, whether that's in a church or whether that's on a college campus like you may have seen with Asbury, I think, several months ago, um, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace or even as an entire nation, every single, every single spiritual awakening that has ever happened was preceded by a season of intense, intentional, persistent corporate prayer every single one i don't know of a single exception prayer always precedes revival prayer always precedes spiritual awakening scripture is filled with examples of god responding to the cries to the groaning to the moaning to the prayers of his people that sent deliverance sent salvation transformation boldness refreshment and his glory Exodus chapter 2 says, God heard their groaning, their prayers, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In the book of Psalm, it says, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and delivered them. They cried out to you. They prayed to you, and they were saved in you. They trusted and they were never disappointed. First Samuel says, Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as the whole offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, on behalf of the entire nation, and the Lord answered him. First Chronicles says, God handed the enemies and all their allies over to them because they cried out to him during the battle, and he answered their prayers because they trusted in him. Second Chronicles says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offerings, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. In Acts, which we're in right now, in Acts, they joined together. They all joined together constantly in prayer as a church. 
along with uh, the, the women and, the mo- and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then you read on down in Acts, says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. A little later on in Acts, says, after they prayed, The church is praying. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke of the word of the Lord boldly. I was thinking about that. What if we just stopped right now and we started praying really, really an intense time of prayer as a church and this building started shaking and filled up with smoke? What would we do? We would probably be hitting that door, hitting that door, and these doors. We would probably rush out of here and go, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Right? Why? Yeah, sometimes I, I, I think sometimes we don't really believe that prayer can change things. I, I think that's what we think sometimes. And we say that we think prayer can change things, but I don't know that we really put our, uh, put our beliefs where our mouth is. But throughout Scripture, we see pages upon pages upon pages of history and culture where lives were changed, culture was changed, people were transformed, they started following after God, all because of prayer. Here's a quote that I really came across this week and I I thought was awesome. It says, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, Prayerless religion, but the devil, he laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. So let me ask you, what is your prayer life like? Well, that was the introduction for today's message, so let's get to the book of Acts right now. It's pretty short. Uh, I'm going to focus on one verse. I'm going to read the entire section of Acts, but you can find this in Acts chapter 12 if you're doing a study on your own, Acts chapter 12. I'm going to start with verse 5. We'll go through like, I don't know, 17 or 18, somewhere around in there. And, uh, but I'm going to focus on this one verse and what the church was doing. And here's the verse. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. While he was in prison, now just if you're new to the Bible, he wasn't in prison for committing some heinous crime. He was in prison because of his faith in Jesus. So Peter's in prison because of his faith in Jesus. And meanwhile, the church is praying earnestly for him and for the mission of the church. I think about that even with Pastor Jason. You know, this Pastor Jason wasn't here today. You know, he, poor Jason, he, he's, like, he's been here like six weeks, and he got COVID on the first week, and now he has pneumonia uh, left over from COVID. And so let's be praying for him. And just like the early church prayed for Peter, I think God has amazing things in store and what God's going to do uh, through Pastor Jason. But he has just struggled ever since he got here uh, with sickness. And so we'll, we'll be praying for him. But this is what the church was doing. Peter was in prison. And the church prayed very earnestly for him. This is what happens while the church is praying. It says, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep. He was fastened with two chains between two soldiers. 
Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him, which is kind of funny because it's actually hit him. The angel hit him uh, on the side to waken him and said, get up, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrist. Then the angel told him, uh, yeah, you probably want to get dressed. You know, he's kind of coming out of this deep sleep and slumber. And he says, you don't want to get dressed. Put on your shoes, put on your sandals. And he did. And the angels even goes further, put on your coat and follow me. When I read this, I had to laugh because I was thinking about back about 30 plus years ago when our first, uh, when Michelle was in labor with our first son. And she woke me up in the wee hours of the morning and she shook me. I was in a deep sleep and she said, it's time to go. It's time to go to the hospital. I'm getting ready to have a baby. And I just, I was, I was asleep and I jumped up and I put my tennis shoes on and she looked at me and she laughed and she goes, um, you're going to need to put some pants on. <laughs> so I put my pants on and I'm just wandering around. And she said, put a shirt on and it's January in Kentucky, it's probably 30 degrees outside you know, you're gonna need to put a coat on. So I got a coat. I got, I was just all in, she had to drive to the hospital even, you know, she drove the hospital. It's crazy. (laughs) I don't remember that. I may have made that part up. So Peter left the cell, it says. He followed the angel, but all the time he thought, is this a dream? This is just a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate that was leading into the city, and, this, and the gate opened up for, it, for him by himself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left Peter. And it says, Peter finally came to his senses. This is really happening. This is really true, he says. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he thought, I need to get to a safe place here. And so he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. Notice that again. They're gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. I love, it. I love the descriptions of the Scripture. You know, it goes into great detail. Even the servant girl, his name's Rhoda. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everybody, Peter's standing at the door. They go, you're out of your mind, they said. When when she insisted, they decided it must be his angel, must be his ghost or something. Meanwhile, this just cracks me up when I think about this. Meanwhile, Peter continues knocking. And I was just thinking, what was he thinking? You've got to be kidding me. You know, I, I, I mean, you guys need to open up this door. These people are after me. Let me inside. And they finally opened the door, and they saw him. They were amazed. And then, and then he motioned for them to be quiet because they were just all talking and talking and talking and talking. He's probably going, okay, quiet, quiet down, quiet down. These people are after us. We don't want to let them know we're here, okay? So he motioned for them to quieten down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. He says, tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. Now, I want you to see that all of this happened, all of this happened because the church was gathered in prayer. The church was gathered in prayer for their leader. The church was gathered in prayer for their mission. So there's three things, real quick, that I want to uh, talk about their prayer, to help you see in their prayer. Number one, they prayed through their fears. They prayed through their fears. What Do you have that you're afraid of right now that's going on in your life? They prayed through their fears. 
Now, their fear was that the mission of the church was going to be dismantled. That's what they were afraid of. Their fear was that their leader was going to be taken out before the church could actually even accomplish the mission. Their fear wasn't just for their lives, but it was for the mission. Their prayer was for the mission of the church to continue. Did you notice when they were praying? They were praying in the middle of the night. They were praying in the night. We're going to have a, a, a night of prayer and worship coming up here just in a week and a half, and I, I'm going to tell you about that at the very end. And You know that as a staff, we went back and forth of whether we were going to host this night of prayer and worship at 6 p.m. or if we were going to host it at 7 p.m. We literally had this discussion as a staff because I was worried that 6 p.m. might be a little too early for those of you who are still working, and that 7 p.m. might be a little too late for those of you like me who, you know, you're at a rave if you're out after 8.30 p.m. in Venice, you know. And so, <laughs> and so we kind of had this discussion whether we're going to have it at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, if we truly have the heart of God for lost people, like God has the heart for lost people, if we truly have a heart for lost people in our community and our passion is to see the church continue its mission, I'm convinced that we would come and pray no matter how late it is. The early church prayed. They prayed through their fears. The second thing is their prayer was a walkie-talkie to God. Talking about cell phones, did any of you guys have uh, the Nextel phone in the early 2000s? You had a Nextel that had the, had the walkie-talkie feature. How many, how many had that? A few of yeah. You know how annoying that thing was? I mean, it was pretty neat technology when we first got it. Our whole staff, I was on a large church staff, and we all had that, those phones at first. And I mean, we'd be sitting down at a dinner table, you know, having dinner, and I'll be, <coughs> uh, Metro, you there? I'm like, good grief. You know, I'm glad they got rid of that feature. It's just ridiculous. But our prayers are like this Nextel phone to God. <coughs> God. It's a walkie-talkie to God. Our prayers are like a walkie-talkie to God. I got this from John Piper. If you ever read John Piper or listen to John Piper, he's a retired, old retired Baptist pastor. He's just fantastic. He wrote this. He said, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. He says this later on. He says, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. That's cool, isn't it? Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. He goes on to say, prayer is for the accomplishment of wartime mission. Church. We're in a war, not against politics, not against our current culture, not against the social issues, not against gender identity, not against racial equality, not even against moral issues. We're in a war against the evil one. That is where our battle is, the devil, Satan. Satan is just as real as God, and if we don't believe that, if we don't realize it, then we've already lost the war. It's true. And when we pray, and, I, and I'll be the first one to admit, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone. 
I pray selfish prayers. I pray selfish prayers that God will make my life more comfortable. I do. Not that God doesn't care about our personal concerns and our personal well-being. He certainly does, and it certainly is okay to pray for our well-being. However, the priority for prayer should be first to God for his majesty and his might and his holiness, and then for his kingdom and kingdom to come. And we prayed this prayer just a little bit ago. We prayed this prayer just a little bit ago. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Uh, now, Jesus taught this, taught this to us, not like Robert was saying. Not, it, it was a pattern for us. It wasn't designed just to be a rote thing that we say, but to make that a pattern. So the first part of our prayer is, God, you are majestic. God, you are holy. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your majesty. You are amazing. Your glory is so amazing. And then what's the next part? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's the kingdom? That's his will. Thy will be done. That's the mission of the church. And then later on comes my day, give us this day our daily bread, right? Those are the things of the comfort. So that's down the list. But oftentimes we start the prayer, give us this day, God, my daily bread. You know, we start our prayer with the comfort, right? But he wants us to pray for his majesty and might. And then we pray for his will and his mission to continue on in the kingdom of God. Then our concerns later on. He wants us to pray for more people to be drawn closer to him. And so our prayer, our prayers should be more about the mission that we have before us. The third part is they were persistent. They were persistent prayers Never stop praying. I could do a whole series. Uh, the widow's uh, prayer is a great, great uh, story in Scripture about this. I could do a whole message and series on the persistence of our prayer. But what happened? What happened because of their persistent prayers? At the same time that they were praying, the chains were being released. The chains were falling off. Prison walls come down. Peter was freed. And King Herod was eaten by worms and then he died. And I like the fact that the scripture says it first that way. He doesn't say he died and then was eaten by worms. He said he was eaten by worms and then he died. I, I, I just found that the first time I ever noticed that, if you read that in your, in, in your scripture, <laughs> he was eaten by worms and then he died. Kind of, kind of sounds gross. <laughs> Not a single protester <laughs> was standing on a street corner with a sign. Rather, the battle was fought in the cover of darkness, in fear for their life, in fear for the mission that God had given them. And they prayed a powerful battle prayer strategy for the mission of the church to continue. What was the end result then? What was the end result of a praying church? If you jump down into verse 24, it says this. It says, Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. Why? Because of their prayers. And culture will change because of prayers. In fact, every time the church prays, God responds. Every time. The mission of the church to help people move closer to God. And we have... We have such a huge vision 
for Center Point Church. Such a huge vision. I mean, we want to utilize this entire uh, nine acres of property that God has blessed us with to fulfill our part of this mission to God, to help more people draw closer to God. We, we want to be a sending church. And by that, I mean we want to plant more churches. We want to equip and train people. You know, our seminaries right now are struggling our seminaries are struggling to produce pastors. There's actually a shortage of pastors. And I was thinking about this. Paul, you and I were talking about this this week, that we were talking about, I don't know that I, as a pastor, I think I have failed in this, that I haven't challenged people enough. Maybe you need to go into the ministry. I want to be that kind of a church that produces, equips, trains up people to go and plant other churches to expand this mission of God in the kingdom. We want to do all of those things. You know, we aren't about um, building buildings. That's not what we're about. We're not about building buildings. We're about building the church, right? But the building that we have is, uh, is, is a tool. I mean, that's all this. Is. This is just a tool. It's, it's all it is. And our tool is really too small for the vision that we have, you know, for the church. And we, we've talked about uh, how we want to accomplish three things in that. We want to accomplish having a uh, space to host more people. We want to host more people. Uh, we want to host more space for children. We want to have more space for children. And we want to be able to fix our parking issues that we have. What's the reason? The reason always comes because God wants us to reach more people with his love and hope and peace and grace. And I believe that happens and is preceded in every way with prayer. It all begins with prayer. So I don't feel like I've led very well in this, to be honest with you. Um, but one of the things that I want us to do, I want us to gather here on Wednesday night, September the 27th at 7 p.m. For those of you... We'll, we, if you're like me, we'll be done by 8, 8.30. You still get to go to bed early. Um, but we'll, I want us to come here, and I want us to spend intentional, intense time as a church family praying for this mission because we see that prayer changes. And every time spiritual awakening happens, it's preceded with prayer. I believe there's a great spiritual awakening that's going to happen in our community. And I believe that it begins with his people coming around to pray. So we're going to have a time of intense prayer and worship on Wednesday night. That's not this Wednesday, but it's the next Wednesday, the following Wednesday. And we'll gather here at 7 p.m. Now, if I was thinking about this, and I don't want to sell you guys short, but I thought if we had, you know, a, a famous comedian come in here, we'd probably pack the room out. But you mentioned prayer, and sometimes it's like, eh, I don't know, it's prayer night. I want to see the entire body. It'd be great if this was standing room only. It's almost standing room only in our 1030 service right now. And I'd love for to see it, just this entire place. If we have to extend out into the lobby area and our entire church praying, praying, praying over the mission of the church, praying for our lost people, and praying for our culture, praying for all these things, and it begins with prayer. Would you stand with me? And let's pray.
Need a new iPad. Pray for that now. (laughs) Father, we come this morning as a church family, as a church body, and we have failed, I have failed even as a leader at praying more intentionally and intensely as a church. We want everything that we do to be preceded with prayer. To not ask you to bless our efforts that we have as a church, but to align our church with your will. And we do know this from your word that you've given us, that your will is for people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ to come in and be drawn closer to you through who Jesus is and to live according to his ways. And so as a church, God, we want to come. We want to confess our sins to you as a people. We want to repent of our sins. We want to fall on our face and on our knees as a church, as families, as individuals. We want to cry out to you just like all the Old Testament prophets cried out to you and the people cried out to you. And God, will you heal us and will you restore and heal our land? We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.